Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Comrade Cast. After a bit of a hiatus, I'm once again back in the saddle after numerous setbacks over the last month. I'm very happy to put 2023 behind me because uh, I was joking with a friend and I was telling him, like, man, 2023 really sucked. Outside of the birth of my son, there really hasn't been anything to celebrate in 2023. That's like the only positive thing that happened to me this year. My buddy's like, I think that's the only positive thing that happened in the entire world. So as I mentioned in the last episode, I got very sick. And then afterwards, of course, what was destined to happen happened. And everyone got sick. Thankfully, not everybody got as sick as I did. It was only mild, only lasted a couple days for everybody. But I was very thankful because if my wife had gone down like I did, it would have been really rough. It would have been really rough. Got through that. And then during this entire time, I'm having like a really awful toothache and I'm just hoping it will go away. And I don't know what's happening. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually my wife's like, I can't handle this anymore. You have to go to the dentist. So she makes an appointment for me. I go to the dentist and the dentist checks my teeth. And long story short, he tells me that I need a double root canal to fix this tooth issue because what had happened basically was that over time a very small hole had opened up in between uh, two of my back teeth and basically what happened is that over time food could get wedged in there and it created a bigger and bigger and bigger hole in between those two teeth and then created like a giant cavity in between the two it was almost like a cave or something is what they said it was like there's like a little door in the cave and then inside it's like wide open cavern so anyway my teeth were messed up and what happened at least according to one of the technicians i was talking to is they said probably the fact that you were coughing so much really exacerbated this tooth issue which is the reason why you're having such a bad toothache right now so i get my double root canals and unfortunately they tell me they can't finish it or something like that and they might have to pull the tooth and they'd finished like what they could. And I was still waiting on the, the go ahead for them to finish the last little bit there and or to see if they're going to pull one of my teeth. Comrades public service announcement for the episode is brushing is not enough. You got to floss too. Um, because if I had flossed better, I probably would have avoided this entire catastrophe. But on the bright side right now, I'm feeling fine, feeling totally good. And what I'm hoping is uh, my mom brought up this point to me during the holidays, which of course we'll get to that as, as with another reason why uh, the podcast was on a bit of a hiatus. But I talked to my mom and apparently my dad had something similar where he had like a issue with one of his teeth and he was having a lot of health problems. And then when he finally got that resolved, the health problems went away because apparently this tooth was so bad, right? It was starting to leak bacteria and stuff into my bloodstream. That's part of the reason why I was having such bad, such a bad toothache. And when my dad got this issue and his teeth fixed, he started to feel better and his health improved. And I'm hoping that that may have been what's been happening to me because I've been having like serious, just chronic health issues over the last year or two. And I'm wondering if it gets fucking tooth thing. So I get that resolved. And then of course we go right into the holidays and during the holidays, if you guys have kids. Man, you understand that, holy crap, is it a busy time? Just getting everything together, right? Parents are coming in, getting all the 
decorations and the presents and the food and the everything that you need to get together for the holidays or to have what you would consider a good holiday experience for the kids. It is a lot of work, but it is definitely worth it because one of the great things about having kids is that it lets you relive some of the small experiences of being a kid again and getting to watch your kids on Christmas, opening up their presents. It's definitely a joy to behold. So I just wrote out the holidays at the tail end, all this stupid bullshit, all these health issues. I was kind of like just writing out the holidays with my kids, with my family. And then, of course, coming back in the new year to get back in the saddle because that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm not going to spend too much time going over 2023 and doing a recap of 2023. That's already old news. We're already at the time of recording, like seven days into 2024. So it's time to look to the future. We've looked to the past long enough. So obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about what 2024 will bring. Of course, the big event, everybody, at least while well, I'm looking forward to this year, well, not looking forward to, but in terms of looking towards is going to have a very large impact is the 2024 presidential election. I can't believe we're already here again. And yeah, it's, that's something I don't have a lot of hope for, but it is the year for one of those things. And with that, I hope you guys all had a fantastic holiday period celebrating Christmas, New Year's, and whatever other holidays you guys celebrate with your families. And I hope you know, buckle down because unfortunately, I don't think 2024 is going to bring much more uh, stability to the world in comparison to 2023, which, of course, brought a considerable amount of instability into the world. So without further ado, let's jump into talking about what is probably going to be the biggest event of 2024, the presidential election. It has been a little while since we've taken stock, and this, of course, is the perfect opportunity to do so going into the election year. I'm recording this one day after January 6th, which I can't believe happened three years ago now. But let's talk about the state of the race, the state of American politics. And we are in a bit of a reversal from where things stood about exactly one year ago. If you guys recall, one year ago, things were looking very good for the Democrats. People were in much more optimistic spirits. The reason being, of course, because they came off a pretty stellar midterm performance, one of the best midterm performances of a party in power in about 50 years, and most people weren't expecting it, right? There was a big expectation of that Republican red wave, which ultimately just didn't materialize. However, now, one year later, going into 2024, the actual election year, things have reversed for the Democrats. Trump now looks to be the odds-on favorite to win this election, which is just, it is marveling to me that we are in this position that we are in. I just feel, right, that this, this if this is the year, this has to be the year, like I, everyone feels this, especially people like me who are much more inclined to outsider politics. People like me, I've been saying like, this is the year for a third party candidate. This is the year they're coming. They're coming, boys. I feel like this has to be like, the ground is we have very fertile ground for a third party candidate. We've had two people now who've held the office of president before going into a rematch of the last year's election. Just feels like a big FU kind of groundhog day scenario where we're just voting for the same candidates over and over and over again, but nothing ever changes. Sorry, I had to get the rant out of the way first. 
But yeah, looking at things right now, we have Trump leading by a aggregate of 2.2 points. And this is via Real Clear Politics. Thing I think about Real Clear Politics, I do think that they are a right biased website, not crazy biased or anything like that. But I do think that they probably do, in terms of at least gathering the data and displaying it for people, probably the best out of any service or website out there. And I've always really relied on them to aggregate data well and display well, even more than places like 538 or New York Times or other types of websites. But regardless, though, let's jump into some of these numbers. We now have some numbers now opening up for the beginning of 2024. A couple of these polls reaching the tail end of the new year, some ending on the second, a couple ending on the first. But by and large, there's these are still fairly old polls, but what we can see right going through is it's pretty close, at least coming into the new year and coming into the actual election year, things have tightened up Biden plus one, Trump plus one, and ties across the board. Earlier in December and late November, you were seeing some very high polling results for Trump. You can see plus 10. I remember when that one came out, everybody freaked the fuck out. Trump plus six, Trump plus four. All told, though, Trump is certainly ahead because even if Biden is a point ahead in the popular polls, or excuse me, in the popular uh, support, the Democrats don't have as, I guess you could say, as an efficient distribution across the Electoral College that the Republicans do. So the Republicans have, uh, in terms of actually needing the number of votes in the right states for them, they can still uh, pull out victory without winning the popular vote. In fact, <laughs> if the Republicans win the popular vote, that's a crushing defeat for Democrats. That would be a total landslide at, that, at this point with the way American politics looks. There's no question that going into the election year, this is bad. We saw a couple of other points of data to really make the alarm bells ring off in your head. And you can see one of them right here, which is a disapproval of negative 16.2, which is, oh, that's brutal, man. That's, that's worse than Trump, I believe, at the same period in his presidency. And we can see that things have not been kind, old Joe. Yeah, 40% approval rate. That is just hovering over that dismal 39% approval rate. Once you start dipping into like the 30s for your approval rate as president, that's that's really bad territory. And Joe Biden is almost there. And I don't know what old Joe can do to turn his personal ship around. Because the thing is, that honestly, both the brands of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are stronger than their current figureheads, right? Both Joe and Trump are extremely unpopular. And we're going to have 2024 be another repeat of 2020, which is an unpopularity contest rather than a popularity contest, which was the exact same thing we had in 2016. So we're just having, again, the same type of elections over and over and over. But now going into uh, 2024, there are a number of serious weaknesses for Joe Biden going into the election. And like I said, if the Democrats dump Joe Biden, honestly, they could probably win with just about anybody who isn't like close to Joe Biden. And, and one of the things I think I mentioned before that the Democratic Party has an advantage of in terms of how their internal party politics functions, 
is that they have the ability to much more easily rise someone uh, to the fore, take a rising star and put them out there and make them president, which is effectively what happened to Barack Obama. The Republicans can't do this. Their political operation is not meant to do something like this. For them, in order to defeat the quote-unquote establishment, uh, you have to do what Donald Trump did, which is be someone who has a lot of power outside the system and then come and enter it. So I'm not as worried about the whole Democrats. Like I hear, oh, the Democrats don't have a deep bench. This is very true. Everybody hates the establishment Democrats. They have to die. But I don't worry about that so much because, like I said, the Democrats have the ability to kind of a, a political star and put them out there. Unfortunately, though, uh, Joe Biden right now, not a political star by any stretch of the imagination. And there are a couple things, well, several things holding back old Joe right now. But I think one of the things right now is that People are really waking up to when they voted for Joe Biden in 2020. I think a lot of them had this implicit assumption that he was going to be a one term president and that he was going to basically get out Donald Trump, get, get rid of him, and then take hold of the Oval Office and try and groom some sort of counterpoint or counterpart to take the reins from him. And I, I guess they tried to do that with Kamala Harris, but they really couldn't have picked a worse person to try and do something like that with. But that being said, people are waking up to the fact that apparently that implicit assumption wasn't really the case, that Joe is seemingly going to run for a second term. And the number one issue is his age. And that is pretty much the number one issue for everybody. Honestly, if Joe were 10 years younger, I don't think anyone would have any questions about his uh, viability in this coming election. I think he'd probably be up by five points or something along those lines. But given the fact that he is 82 now and then going into his second term, he's going to be 86 at the end of it. Yeah, it's it's time to pack it in. But it was time to pack it in last time. You had your last victory hurrah. Now it's 2024. People are realizing, wait a second, this guy doesn't look like he's actually going to step down. It looks like he's going to go for a second term. And I think given his age, and his stature and all the various political offices the guy's held in his life. I think people are seeing it as a little bit greedy to uh, go for another term. One of the things I think that he thinks in his head and old Joe thinks in his head is that he is the best politician poised to defeat Donald Trump. And in 2022, that may have been somewhat arguable. I wouldn't have said, yeah, that's definitely the case, but you could at least create a, a semblance of an argument for that point now that we're in the political uh, realm that we are at the end of 2023 uh, beginning of 2024 you cannot make that argument anymore in fact one very important and earth-shaking geopolitical event happened in 2023 that has basically turned the political fortunes against joe biden in a way that it looked like going into 2024, things were in that uh, coin toss direction, maybe slightly favoring Joe. Now heading into 2024, things are in the opposite, or things seem to be favoring Donald Trump. And the reason why these political fortunes have really so drastically shifted is his response to what has happened in Gaza. 
One of the things I mentioned way back, I think, in, in several episodes ago, is that one of Joe Biden's political strengths is that he has, yes, a lot of people who dislike him, but there aren't a lot of people who just actively hate the guy. They're just like, oh, God, frothing at the mouth, just despise him. We'll cr crawl over glass just to vote against the guy. We'll make people who support him hold their noses and go to the ballot box and vote for him. He no longer can have that claim because the way he has handled Gaza has made a huge swath of his own political base now move into that territory of, I, I fucking hate this guy. We'll be touching on Gaza again, and we'll be doing a, an update on Gaza again later in the show. But for now, I just want to talk about like the political implications because effectively what Joe Biden has done is the absolute bare minimum to rein in Israel in any way, shape, or form in its current offensive operations on the Gaza Strip. And his complacency has allowed Israel to basically set up all the preconditions of, well, a lot of people are throwing around the word genocide. I don't think that we're in that territory yet, but I can't take it off the table. I can't say, you know what, there doesn't seem like this is going to happen because you can see the dominoes being moved into place and it's scary because if you just have a couple more dominoes moved into place, then you can tip it over. And, then that, and that's when you're talking about genocidal behavior, mass death events that end in the death of half a million to a million people. But just because you can't use the most extreme qualifier yet for what's happening in Gaza, that doesn't mean that what is happening isn't a horrific crime and absolutely needs to be prevented with the full force of the United States international leverage. So anyway, back more towards the politics, left-wing people tend to lean towards support of Palestine. Obviously, Joe Biden's base is mostly left-wing, and the fact that they feel that Joe Biden has left Palestine really out to dry at the hands of Israel has very much so upset them. And particularly one of the most upset, uh, the two most upset, I would say, cohorts of the Democratic base, which are upset by what's happening in Gaza, are young people who overwhelmingly support Palestine and Muslim Americans who obviously overwhelmingly support Palestine. And while these people aren't going to go out there and vote for Trump, because Trump's policy is effectively the same, if not go further. So voting for Trump isn't going to get them what they want. But I can see why you can't bring yourself to vote for someone who could stop what's happening in Gaza, or at least could be doing more to prevent it, but chooses not to. And then say to somebody, now I want your vote. I think that either that person is going to stay home or again, what we talked about at the start, they could be very easily tempted by a strong third party candidate. Since August 22nd, old Joe's lost five points of approval and things aren't going to get any better for him. And then before I move into talking about the Republicans, the third point that's really dragging Joe down is the fact he's not doing anything. And if people were to vote for him for a second term, they feel like he's going to just continue to do nothing. And one of the shows I like to watch among several 
for political content is breaking points. And I really like, obviously, Crystal. I think she's great. Sagar, I don't mind. My only real complaint about the guy is that I think he's more right wing than he lets on. Like, I think if we were like, give him truth serum and just let, let him go, let, let him rip and uh, let him see what he really believes, I think he would have a, a lot more right wing opinions than he lets on. But regardless, I really do like the show. And they were breaking down this like word cloud that they had comparing Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And the biggest word they had for Joe Biden was that what is Joe Biden going to do a second, in a second term? And the, the biggest word was nothing. And for Trump, it was revenge. So the, the 2024 election is shaping up to be a contest between nothing and revenge. You deserve so much better, my American friends. But now let's move into the Republican nomination. Not much to say here. It really looks like Trump is going to run away with this thing. I can't believe we're, we're getting to the point where we are almost at we're almost at the rubber meets the road section now where votes are actually going to start coming in on this primary. The Iowa caucuses are just around the corner and it's going to be the time where it's people are going to start shitting or getting off the pot proverbially. And it right now looks like, again, Trump is just running away with this thing. We can see, though, a, a substantial increase for Nikki Haley, who has managed to break into the vaunted double digits position. Although DeSantis still continues to show a strongish campaign. But what we can see here, though, is finally in the average of polls, Nikki has slowly jumped ahead of DeSantis by a single point oh percentage point. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's not going to matter because unless, of course, we have some sort of total political implosion, uh, Trump's going to run away with this thing. You know, it would be possible for some sort of coalescing anti-Trump movement to happen around Nikki Haley. But the time for that to really coalesce is diminishing rapidly. So, yeah, the only thing that can really stop Trump is this idea in terms of the Republican primary is maybe people in the Republican primary decide that it's not worth risking the fact that he might be kicked off the ballot in various different states and decide to go with somebody else. Although personally, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of hope in uh, those kind of kicking him off the ballot initiatives to get a lot of steam and to get a lot of headway. And the main reason is because it's, a, it's just going to end up in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court leans already six to three Republican. So I definitely feel like the Supreme Court is going to have his back. And honestly, yeah, if I were Republican strategist, I'd pretty much just take everything, every issue I ever had and just try and put it in front of the Supreme Court. So to put a pin on 2024, don't have a lot of hope going into the election. Right now, Trump, in my opinion, is the favorite to win because Joe Biden has managed to take himself from just general fuddy-duddy incompetence to, I fucking hate this guy's guts. And while Trump may have alienated just about everyone he could conceivably count on as an ally, he does have one ally, and that is his very fervent base of support, and they will come to bat for him no matter what. And for Joe, he just doesn't have anything like that, and he's managed to completely and utterly kneecap his ability to even 
come with some sort of type of coalition or fervor in support of him that could match that. All right, so now let's move into the war in Ukraine and talk about what this geopolitical event is going to bring us in the coming year. I want to do a very brief review and update on the various sectors of the Ukrainian war before we bring it together and talk about things on a more larger and, and geopolitical perspective. So moving in here, I've decided to move into the deep state map, especially for presentation purposes. While it misses some of the up-to-date events, I do think that it looks much cleaner than a lot of the other maps. Plus having the counters for, well, the Russian divisions, what we know of the Russian divisions, we obviously don't have counters for the Ukrainian ones. <laughs> anyway, moving into the fighting here, across the Dnieper River. This was actually, and I hadn't really touched on it because before I, I, I touched on it, I wanted to see if this would ever come to any kind of fruition or there would be, or this attack, offensive probing action, whatever you want to call it, would actually yield some results, which unfortunately it doesn't look like it did. But uh, a lot of people are really down on this move. So effectively, what Ukraine did was attack across the Dnieper River with various Marines, pontoon boats, and whatever else they could to get across the river. And of course, they'd move in here and try and build up little kind of raiding bases and strike into weakened Russian positions here. And usually this is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And the reason being is because attacking across a river like that is very precarious because it's extremely difficult to supply an army on the other side of a river. As you would imagine, a river is a natural barrier. We can't really cross it without some sort of artificial means. And setting up those artificial means usually takes some time. And especially in the era of modern warfare with precision strikes, you see somebody trying to set up even like a basic pon pontoon bridge to cross a river. It's very easy to spot it, take that out and uh, go from there. So it's not seen as a very wise move. The, the reason I think it was worth trying is because at the time, most of this fighting was happening at the height of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And at this time, Russia had committed most of its best forces to holding the line here. So it stands to reason that over here on the Kyrgyzstan front, they would have much weaker and more ill-prepared and ill-equipped troops, which they did. And they were actually able to do some pretty surprising damage initially against these unprepared troops. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough, and uh, they've by and large been thrown back from a lot of their positions across the river. Unfortunately, despite the fact that these troops are not the best, they were able to be reinforced. Plus, again, they do have a lot of really great defensive terrain to work with. So I get and understand from a tactical perspective what Ukraine was trying to do, which is basically try and open up and probe against another potentially weakened sector during an attack where most of your best troops are occupied in another area. But speaking of the Russian best troops and occupied in another area, unfortunately, we can all say that the Ukrainian counteroffensive was nowhere near as successful as many of us, has ho as many of us hoped and liked. The main objective, right, being the city of Tomac, which is a huge, huge supply sector. As you can see, a nexus of roads runs through the city and spreads out through the territory. 
and the Russians send truckloads of supplies through the area. This was considered to be the tip of the iceberg for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. If they were able to take the city, it was considered to be a success. The first phase of their counteroffensive was going to be considered successful. As we can see, they didn't even get close, unfortunately. And right now, as we speak, the Russians are attacking heavily in the area of Robotnye, which is the main sort of salient that the Ukrainians were able to build out of the Russian lines. But that being said, like I said, like I said, we can all now come to the agreement and consensus that the Ukrainian counteroffensive was not as successful as we would have hoped. And there are a variety of reasons to that. But the main reason being, in my opinion, is that defensive warfare is still highly effective. And we also, the reason why we saw a lot of these, and you can see these large green patches of territory are territory that are reclaimed by the Ukrainians. But you can see these large patches in the Kharkiv offensive and the Kyrgyzstan offensive, I think really spoil us in terms of what we could expect because in both of these counteroffensives, the Russians were not very well dug in, were not well supplied. In the issue of the Kherson offensive, they were well dug in, but they weren't well supplied because they couldn't effectively supply their forces across the Dnieper River. <laughs> I do think that these definitely spoil us in terms of what we could expect in terms of counteroffensive, especially in terms of very well defended and dug in positions. So we can say that the Russian army is still very capable on the defensive. They can, when they have the time and the space to fortify their positions, they can still operate very well and defend the territory that they've taken. And yeah, they are not to be underestimated in terms of trying to reclaim Ukrainian territory now and moving forward, especially because it will be very difficult right now for Ukraine to pull something that they did in Kyrgyzstan by shutting down Russian supply and making it difficult for the Russians to supply their troops. That is, of course, unless they can take some of these key cities, as we've said before, it's not going to be an easy task. Moving along the front line here, we can see a huge Russian offensive happening here near the pocket of Andrivka. And right here, I do expect this city to fall eventually. We can see that, particularly here in the north, I really don't like this. Because as they move northward, there is virtually no defensive territory for the Ukrainians to really build up positions against the Russians. So I am really worried, particularly about this northern position and the south. I think that they'll be fine. But I do see a lot of very pro-Russian people in this war, very excited about this Andrivka offensive. I do expect the city to fall, unfortunately, although I do think that the Ukrainians have taken a large toll on the Russians. The thing for the Russians, though, is that this is not a huge, this is not a huge step forward. This is a small step forward. The, the main thing I do think, though, is that it really lets them bypass a major defensive position here in Andrivka and will allow them to easily push forward. But eventually they're just going to run into the next Ukrainian line and the whole process will begin all over again. And we can even see moving up. We do have some Russian offensive in the area of Chasovyar. Right now, we have Russian offensives, as you can see, happening in many different positions all along the front line. Not so much here in the north, but we do even see a little bit, a little bit in the north, not a huge amount. 
What these are most likely is a variety of kind of probing attacks to see if they can find a weak position and exploit it. Large scale offensives do put a significant amount of strain on the Ukrainian front line. That being said, large scale offensives put significant strain on the front lines of the attackers as well. So yes, these attacks are going to strain Ukraine, but I don't think that they are going to be enough to strain it to its breaking point. And once the Russians are exhausted, this, of course, leaves them open to various counterattacks. What do I think about the position of Ukraine right now? Well, right now, guys, I am honestly probably the most pessimistic about Ukraine's prospects that I've been since the beginning of the war. Honestly, this is the most that I've been down looking into the future of Ukraine. Uh, this is the most that I've been pessimistic in a very long time. And again, particularly when we look to where we were at the end of 2022, going into 2023 with a, a successful Hearson offensive, moving now into 2024, uh, the Ukrainian side simply doesn't have that morale boost considering that the counteroffensive was not as successful. Whereas the Russians now do have that morale boost. They were able to throw back the hordes, the NATO hordes, right? And they were able to capture uh, some equipment and uh, all of these things give their forces a morale boost that they are obviously going to cash out in this incoming offensive. And to be fair, if they are able to gain some territory and gain some advantages in this offensive, then that will further aid Russian morale. But the reason I'm pessimistic isn't because of the Ukrainian people's resolve, which I believe their resolve to continue to fight is still very high and probably is so high that they are going to fight to the last bullet type of high. That being said, though, the morale or whatever you want to say, the support is not as high in the Western countries as it was a couple of years ago. And this is very unfortunate because this is something that Putin definitely banked on was the fickleness of Western attitudes and the fickleness of Western politicians and politics to eventually move on from the war in Ukraine and look at other issues around the world. And while many countries remain very steadfast in their support of Ukraine, countries like Poland, Germany, the United Kingdom, obviously most of the Eastern European states. The one place it doesn't remain high, though, is in the United States. And it is very possible that the Republicans win in 2024 and decide to significantly reduce or cut the aid to Ukraine. Unfortunately, Ukraine is in a position where it has to make a very difficult sell to a lot of these Western powers that might be wavering in their support because they have to sell a now what it seems to be evolving into. And I think that we can all pretty much be comfortable in saying is that this is evolving into a long-term traditional based war and going to another country and saying, listen, we are going to need material over the long term to replace what is going to be lost in battle and other forms of attrition. You're going to need to support us with that for the long term to the end of a future that we cannot foresee versus give us these weapons and we can achieve this spectacular breakthrough, smash through the Russian lines, achieve 
reconstitution of our territory in in ways that you couldn't even imagine. It's a lot harder to sell that attritional war than the spectacular offensive uh, to an audience in the West here. And not only that, one of the things we've talked about and one of the things that I've been raising the alarm bells on this channel for a little while is this war's progression into a long-term attritional-based war, the type of war that Russia is good at, the type of war that Russia can actually win. Because right now, Russia and Putin, to a greater extent, has effectively weathered the storm. They've managed to transition their economy largely to a more wartime economy, fueled by its own resources and labor or the resources and labor of nearby countries rather than Western resources. They've been able to withstand the sanctions so far. They've managed to find loopholes to gain the technology they need, although the sanctions have managed to slow drastically the water flow, but they haven't been able to block it entirely, right? They have managed to find other buyers for a lot of their resources outside of Europe. So Russia has managed to now at the start of 2024, it's looking a lot more stable than it did at the start of 2023. And not only that, Putin has, at least for now, and I think we'll be able to for the rest of 2024, but probably not into 2025, distract and keep the population unaware of what's happening in Ukraine and keep Russian society chugging along in good enough fashion that it won't disturb the lives of everyday Russian people that much. I think that by and large, they've managed to avoid and will be able to avoid a mobilization for the rest of 2024. Again, moving into 2025, which I do think is likely that this war will continue into 2025. That period, it's going to look much more like another wave of mobilization. Right now, Russia, I think, will be able to avoid that for this year because one of the things that they have done is effectively increase the pay for uh, Russian soldiers fighting in Ukraine. In addition to that, they've also increased the benefits for if you get disabled or if you die in battle type of thing. They've increased the benefits for being in the army and fighting in Ukraine, not to the point where someone, say, in a place like Moscow, or St. Petersburg might want to say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to leave my life here in the big city and join the army. Like we talked about those guys in the rural Urals in some of those small Russian towns, right? Your options are working in like peat moss farm or joining the army type of thing. And given those two prospects, joining the army seemed like a lot more of an attractive option. And thus the Russian army has been able to fuel itself for 2023 and probably into 2024 by a wave of volunteers and recruits from a lot of these rural areas in Russia by, of course, increasing the pay to a point where uh, joining the army is more attractive to them than staying in their kind of defunct small town where there isn't a lot of opportunity. And to be fair, right, this happens in a lot of large countries, like take the United States, for example. I'm sure anybody who has been in the military in the United States will tell you that disproportionately people from states like Oklahoma and Kansas and Missouri, all these kind of middle states that aren't as economically prosperous as places like 
New York or Miami or Los Angeles, I'm sure in the American military, you will see a vastly larger proportion of recruits made up of those more economically depressed areas. To the people in the cities where there's lots of economic activity and potential jobs out there, joining the military does not seem like that attractive of an option. But to somebody in the middle of rural middle America, joining the army seems a lot more attractive. Then on the flip side, Ukraine right now is at the point where they are experiencing a lot of manpower shortages. They are probably at the point where they have exhausted their volunteers, both foreign and local. And I do think that a general mobilization is coming. In fact, it's probably the only way that Ukraine can stay in this war is that they are going to need some sort of general mobilization to continue fighting. This is not surprising and, of course, very doable for Ukraine. My big worry is that what happens after the point of general mobilization? Will the Russians have actually been able to out-trit Ukraine? They continue to keep fighting and slowly but surely wear down their army because even if the Russians lose more soldiers, they lose more gear, they can still uh, replace those losses better than Ukraine can, particularly if Ukraine is lacking in that Western support. So we can't take our eyes off Ukraine going in 2024. In fact, this is the time when we need to seal ourselves even more and begin to double down in our support of Ukraine if we actually want them to continue to be a functioning uh, nation state. But before we move into kind of the last parts of the episode, I want to move into a weird segue here and talk a little bit about political warfare because we have been talk we've been talking a lot about warfare and we will continue to talk a lot about warfare on the show. But one of these ideas that has been really fascinating to me is this idea of political based warfare, which is warfare where your objectives are not just based on tangible military objectives, but also political objectives. And this type of warfare was really pioneered in the 20th century by one individual. You guys probably don't know him, a guy by the name of Bonwin Gap. But I'm sure just by saying that name, you can figure out what country he is from. Bonwin Gap was the commander, the military commander of the Viet Cong and the Viet Minh Army during the Vietnamese War. And of course, in the precursor to that, the French Indochina War, and of course, in the precursor to that, when the Vietnamese partisans were fighting the Imperial Japanese Army. So anyway, Gap and Ho Chi Minh were kind of like Augustus and Agrippa, right? They were two men who had long-standing personal ties and also had strengths and weaknesses that very much so complemented each other and through that, they were able to accomplish a lot of incredible things. So for Ho Chi Minh, he was obviously the ideological, political, and I guess almost spiritual, I guess you can say, figurehead for North Vietnam and the Viet Minh Army. So Ho Chi Minh was very politically adept in the same way that Augustus was. And of course, you have Gap, who was extremely militarily adept. And not just that, like, so in my opinion, uh, militarily adept that he really pioneered a type of warfare that 
I don't think people have spent enough time studying and contemplating because I do think that it has the potential to really revolutionize and change the way we think about how conflicts are fought, particularly moving into the 21st century. But for Gap, what was really his signature, I think, innovation to military theory was this notion of taking political objectives and tying them to your military ones. And the one example that everybody uses to talk about this is the Tet Offensive and the Vietnam War. So effectively, what this offensive was, was the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong planned this elaborate attack on a whole host of South Vietnamese positions all across South Vietnam simultaneously. So they planned this massive offensive, which effectively attacked everywhere all at once simultaneously, including in the middle of Saigon, where North Vietnamese uh, soldiers were able to seize the American embassy and, of course, take down the American flag. And when you look at the Tet Offensive on paper, it looks like a military disaster for North Vietnam because virtually all the territory that they gained during the offensive was quickly recaptured and they lost a ton of men, material, and equipment during that fight. But what it did do was accomplish those political objectives. And the political objective was to show mainly the audience back in America that not only was the North Vietnamese capable and strong enough and sophisticated enough to attack everywhere simultaneously in this very well-coordinated offensive, that they could also attack anywhere, including the very consulate of the United States in the capital of South Vietnam. And just the very fact that they were able to put together such a sophisticated operation and was able to achieve the goals that it achieved really shook American public opinion to the core and, of course, American military planners. So where am I going with all this? Why am I bringing this up? Well, we will jump into our third kind of update for and, and looking into 2024. But I do want to talk about sort of political objectives in terms of our war here in Ukraine. And I honestly think that Putin is doing a better job of observing these political objectives much more than we in the West are. And in fact, that we in the West don't understand that we are putting political objectives onto military ones. I think we're, we're doing the opposite, right? Rather than combining political and military objectives, we are taking our military objectives and then toppling political ones on top of that. Of course, the main one being the counteroffensive that the West really piled on a ton of political expectations onto this counteroffensive. And now that it didn't succeed in the manner that we were all hoping to, a lot of those political expectations are now coming crashing down. Whereas uh, a battle like Bakhmut back at the beginning of 2023, everyone was bashing Russians and you know, the Russian commanders for the great expansive military resources, both again in men, material, and equipment, to take the city of Bakhmut. However, its expense, both from the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, gave it a certain political significance, which the Russians capturing that city gave their forces a small 
but significant morale boost to effectively continue the fight into 2023. So I think if you start to look at Russian strategy more in terms of political objectives that the Russian state and or Vladimir Putin would be trying to achieve, I think you might start to make sense of their strategy uh, a lot more. But now let's move into what I really wanted to tell you or talk about was one of my beautiful GPTs I have created. And this is one of my favorite ones. This is my Red Napoleon GBT. And of course, I'll give you guys the link for this guy if you ever want to talk to him. This is the embodiment of uh, Vonin Gap. And he is awesome. He's a great, great, and very interesting GBT to talk to. And he has given me a lot of interesting and fascinating insights. But anyway, I was talking with my boy Gap. And we were talking about what was happening in Israel. And one of the great things, and unfortunately this is now old, right? This is a couple of weeks old. So this map is now a little bit uh, outdated. Um, right now, I'm sure Israel commands more territory uh, than when I first presented this to, to Gap. And of course, one of the things I really like about these GBTs is how you can uh, now give them pictures and, and visual data, and they will give you responses and insights. So I asked him what he thought about the current conflict in Israel and the war in Gaza. And here's what he said. Here is actually where things do get interesting. So I asked him, what would you do if you were in Israel's position? So the Red Napoleon responds. He says, if I were in Israel's position, facing a scenario such as the one depicted, my response would be multifaceted bouncing military objectives with political and humanitarian considerations. Number one, military strategy. I would ensure the defense of the civilian population through the Iron Dome or other missile defense systems while securing the border to prevent precise strikes on military targets would be essential to minimize civilian casualties following intelligence-led operations to avoid collateral damage. Number two, diplomatic engagement. Simultaneously, I would engage in international diplomacy to garner support for Israel's right to defend itself while also seeking avenues for a ceasefire. It's important to work with international mediators and allies to put pressure on both sides to come to the negotiating table. 3. Humanitarian Efforts I would coordinate with international organizations to provide humanitarian aid to the civilians affected by the conflict. This would not only be a moral imperative, but it also helps mitigate the grievances which can fuel further conflicts. Sorry. Just... Four, counterinsurgency. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this now. Understanding that military might alone cannot secure lasting peace, I would implement counterinsurgency tactics that would include intelligence gathering, winning the hearts and minds of the civilian population, and cutting off support and supply lines of the various militant groups. Five, political solutions. In the long term, I would seek a political solution that adheres to the root causes of the conflict. This would involve negotiations on the status of the Gaza Strip, ensuring that the Palestinian civilians have a clear path to self-determination, economic opportunity, and a hopeful future. 6. Public communication. I would maintain transparent communication with the public, explaining the rational behind military actions and the efforts being made to avoid civilian casualties. It is critical to maintain public trust and international legitimacy. 7. 
regional cooperation. I would also seek to strengthen the ties with moderate Arab states and other regional actors to isolate the extremist elements and work towards a comprehensive and regional approach to peace and security. <laughs> See my immediate response, which is, it's a shame that Israel isn't doing any of that, which is, yeah, basically where I was going with this whole thing. Again, I, I just think it was fascinating to, I know obviously this is not a real person, but just to see the AI's response to what's going on. And effectively, it goes back to what I talked about. If I were an Israeli commander tasked with invading Gaza, the thing I talked about, the very first thing I would try and do is separate the civilian population from Hamas in terms of kind of a hearts and minds operation. And as you can see, none of the things which would probably lead to a beneficial outcome and long-term long stability and peace and prosperity in the region, none of that is currently happening right now. So we'll just do one more uh, little snippet here. So this came out when, if you guys remember, this was probably about a week or two ago where we had this news story that circulated about how Israel, this, this came right from the IDF, right? That Israel has a 20% friendly fire casualty ratio or something like that, that something like 20 out of the 100 casualties so far in the war were resulted in friendly fire. First off, when I read the actual numbers of the casualties that the IDF is putting out, I was like, no way. There's no way it's that low, guys. I'm, I'm sorry that there's no way that only 100 Israeli soldiers have died so far in this operation. Don't believe that whatsoever. But needless to say, I wanted to see what old Gap had to say about this ratio. So I asked him, I say, hey, Gap, would you consider a 20% deaths due to friendly fire high for an army? He responds, in military terms, a 20% casualty rate due to friendly fire is exceedingly high and indicates serious issues within an army's command, control, and communication structures. Throughout history, friendly fire has been an unfortunate reality of warfare often caused by fog of war, misdirection, or lack of proper coordination. In my experience, especially during the Indochina conflicts, we placed great emphasis on disciplined communication and clear identification to minimize such incidents. Modern armies strive for precise targeting and clear rules of engagement to reduce tragic errors. This rate would suggest an a need for an immediate review and reform of operational protocols. So good job. I feel like when the IDF put out that like casualty statistic, they wanted to be like, look, Hamas isn't the one killing our people. We're killing our own people. Is this like something to brag about guys? Are you putting this out? Is this like a, a badge of honor or something? All right. So let's briefly look at the live map right now. As we can see, the main territorial acquisitions since that last map we looked at are in the south, supposedly the area that the Israeli army is not predominantly operating in, the area that's supposed to be safest for civilians. As we can see, the Israelis have carved out considerable territory in the southern area here. Up in the north, though, uh, things still remain pretty much a standstill with the Israeli army very slowly making progress into the main city of Gaza, block by block, strip by strip, was that Israeli army detains television teams, including Al Jazeera crew, and the Gaza Strip and prevents them from continue, continuing their work. But over the last 24 hours or so, or over the last 24 hours or so, 
what we have been seeing is not a whole ton of activity actually happening on the Gaza Strip. Where we see most of the activity happening is we are seeing a huge amount of artillery strikes right now into southern Lebanon. And this is something that has been continually increasing. One thing I should do, maybe I should see if I can grab some data or something like that for an episode in the future, because I've been keeping tabs on this and there have been the occasional shellings into southern Lebanon over the past couple of weeks. But in the past couple of days, especially today, they've just been ramping up huge. This is definitely a larger amount of shelling icons that I've seen. I don't want to say in all time, but definitely in quite a while. We have a couple pictures here of the Israeli army shelling positions in southern Lebanon. The Jordanian king right now comes out and he says he's rejecting the forced displacement of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip and says that West Bank settler it, violence is unacceptable, which is 100% correct and must be addressed. And we have another picture here I want to show you guys. These are Israeli planes flying over Beirut. You can see that somebody took a couple pictures of the Israeli warplanes en route or returning home or whatever it is that they were doing. So. Regardless, there isn't a huge amount of, of updates that I can give you guys. The one thing like I'll tell you guys is like this whole situation is just so unbelievably heartbreaking that it is sometimes hard for me to watch. But I'll, I'll tell you guys one thing like this fighting in Gaza and everything like that. It's really plugging at my heartstrings, as you might say. I'm naturally a pretty empathic guy. Naturally, a really like hippy dippy guy that really wants everybody to get along, and just seeing the suffering, the human suffering that's happening in Gaza right now, it's horrifying. It's something that you wouldn't think to have happened in uh, the 21st century. But what we saw with the horrific war crimes committed in Ukraine, it seems like the 21st century is not going to be bereft of crimes against humanity. But especially as a guy with young kids reading about some of the things that have been happening in Gaza, just awful. And it's just tough to read about. I can't imagine having to experience it firsthand. But yeah, for me though, right now what's happening in Gaza is my biggest question mark. I wouldn't say I'm hopeful, but I'm not super doomer or pessimistic about what's going to happen in the Middle East either. I, I at least in the sense that I'm not overly pessimistic that this will evolve into a multifaceted type of war happening in the Middle East. I could be wrong about that one. If you were to ask me to bet on if this is going to provoke a broader war in the Middle East, I would say no, but it wouldn't be a very confident bet. It would be made in with a little bit of, of hesitancy. So while I may feel pretty doomer about the direction things are going with American politics and the election this year, and the way things are going in the war in Ukraine. Despite the horror and tragedy in Gaza, I'm not as doomerish yet. Yet. That's a big qualification. I, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm the most hopeful and optimistic about this situation, which is, though, really not saying a whole lot. But part of the reason why is because I feel... I have the least amount of ability to predict what is going to happen in the Middle East and what is going to happen in Gaza here and how this conflict is going to evolve because this thing really came out of nowhere for a lot of us. I was predicting uh, something like this to flare up last year 
and I can't really predict where things are going to go from here. So yeah, that is unfortunately all I really got to say on uh, those particular issues. And those are the three biggest things that I am thinking about looking at going into uh, 2024. There are some smaller tier things that I'm looking at. I am really hoping I could do a, a smaller follow-up episode to this one and go over those smaller tier things. Again, I'm not going to promise anything because every time I promise something, something comes up and I'm not able to complete what I want to do. But I really want to talk about the situation bubbling over with between Venezuela and Guyana and the Essequibo, which is this sort of territory right here. If you guys can see it, this kind of little of a... I was going to say it's a territory that looks like a, a Belgium turned 90 degrees. That, that, that's what that, that, that's the Rorschach test. It's like someone shows the Rorschach test. That looks like a Belgium turned 90 degrees. What the hell is wrong with this guy? Anyway, yeah, so that's the Essequibo, but basically Venezuela has uh, had its own internal referendum to annex a part of another country. It's, it's a joke, but, um, has the potential to have some serious issues if it were to boil over. Uh, I did want to talk about that, and we will talk about that. Uh, also in South America, I want to talk about the recent election of Millet, the, the cap figurehead, which was recently elected as the president of Argentina and has already been fucking shit up on an extraordinary level. I really wanted to talk about that, but unfortunately it was just kind of like small potatoes in terms of some of the other things that we're talking about. And then of course, another issue that I think has the potential to really boil over in ways that we haven't really talked about before is the Houthis attacking cargo shipping right here near Djibouti. And this instance, if you guys haven't read about it, basically these Houthis, which are effectively a rebel group right now inside of Yemen, attacked some cargo ships with drones and, and whatnot. And this is the first kind of attack we've really seen happen. And I think could have some serious implications in terms of shipping in the future. And since that first attack, I believe we've had at least one more, maybe two, I know one for sure. And I think that this is something that has a real impact or that has a real possibility to boil over into some serious issues in the future. But unfortunately, I've really rambled on for quite some time already for this episode. Obviously, this is going to be a longer episode because I'm trying to catch up with uh, some of the things that have happened in, in the last month or so. But unfortunately, I've gone on long enough for today, so I'm going to cut it off there. And I'm hoping I can do another segment where I can talk about some of these smaller tier issues that are happening in the world and how they're going to evolve and play out this year. But until next time, this has been DeComrade. I hope you guys have an awesome 2024. And until next time, you guys take care.